because often the areas that we exercise our faith are the only areas that are convenient and easy and don't cost us much. Don't live your life with a lack of authenticity. But you're never wrong when you love people. Never. So if my faith is real, it's evidenced in how I, how I treat people. Angie and I have missed you, and it is so good to be back, and uh, thought about you every day, praying for you every day, and excited for what God is doing here, Um, and this morning, there's something God has kind of been stirring in my heart for a little while, and something I want to share with you, but... I need to let you know, it might be a little bit offensive. Have you ever been offended? Anybody ever been offended? Sometimes we're offended by how other people drive. Sometimes we're offended by how other people sing or lack thereof. Sometimes, sometimes we're offended by sports. I mean, have you ever gotten offended by somebody else's team? For example, I'll show you. How, how, many, how many Eagles fans in the house? How many Eagles fans? That's awesome. Y'all are the only people I know that get excited about preseason. It's preseason. It's because you don't have a culture of winning. You've only won one Super Bowl. I mean, that's all you've got. So <laughs> I told you, you're going to be offended this morning, maybe. But now some of you are thinking, wait a minute. I thought, I thought he always cracks on the Giants. That's getting so old because they can't win anything. I mean, it's just like, what is the point? Nobody cares anymore. You can't even get a good quarterback. I mean, who cares? And so now more of you are offended. And so you feel that, you think that. Uh, but part of my job as a pastor is to be a missionary, to bring people to Jesus and God's team. And so in that process, now I've offended almost everybody in the room except a few. Life, sometimes things happen that are offensive. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that for many of you is going to be somewhat offensive. But here's what I'm asking you to do. A lot of you are politically correct and you talk about and you preach tolerance. I'm going to ask you this morning to practice what you preach. I'm going to ask you to be willing to sit in a room and listen to something that you might disagree with and have respect for me, and I'll respect you. Listen, I think part of the deal is, as followers of Jesus, we should be able to disagree and still love each other and get along. We shouldn't get so offended over every issue that we both, and if, if yeah, and if you, if you have a strong belief, it should be strong enough that you're able to sit somewhere and listen to another opinion, and it doesn't shake your belief, and if it does, I don't know that you believe what you think you believe. But to my friends that are Eagles fans and Giants fans, it's crazy. Most of my friends love other teams. It's insane. My closest friends love other teams. Listen, I love you. I was joking. My purpose this morning is not to offend you. That, that is not my job. But I, I think there are some things in Scripture that sometimes we find offensive. And we're going to go to the book of James, the, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James was so offensive 
that about 400 years ago when the, the, the Reformation was taking place and Martin Luther was kind of leading the charge, breaking away from the institution of the Catholic Church and saying, hey, some things have to change. He tried to change it, couldn't change it, he and some others. And so they started their own uh, thing, the, the Protestants protesting the institution and some of the practices of the Catholic Church. When that happened, they were praying through and trying to decide what books will be in our Bible. Now, we know the Bible is divinely inspired. It's the Word of God. But in that process, they're praying through it. And Martin Luther did not want the book of James in our Bible. He didn't want it because Martin Luther, the message of the Reformation was it's the grace of God. It is the mercy of God. It's only by that that we are saved. Saved meaning saved from our sins and saved into a relationship with a living God. That, that it's the grace of God. And, and James seems to come from a different perspective. And so Luther did not even want the book of James in what's called the canon of Scripture. He didn't want it there. But as they prayed through it, and I believe it's because it is divinely inspired, it is the Word of God, it is honest and accurate and pure and right, it is in our Bible. And on top of that, how, how do you, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, kick out his half-brother? I don't see that happening. And so we have this book, and James seems to come from a different glance in how he defines faith and the practicalities of what it's supposed to look like in our lives. He begins in James chapter 2, verse 14, by saying, What good is it, my brothers? Now, when he uses that phrase, my brothers, he lets us know immediately he's talking to people that are Christ followers, people that are a part of the family of God, men and women, brothers and sisters, people that have decided to surrender their lives to Christ. They're Christ followers. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, this is a hard teaching, but it's not for you. If you're kind of contemplating the claims of Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of our time together to surrender your life to Christ. If you do that, that's awesome. What's going to happen in the next few moments is you're going to get a very honest look at what the scriptures teach and what they say about who a Christ follower is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like and how we're supposed to live. And here's part of the reality that we have to deal with. I believe often in life, people who are not Christ followers know more about what people who are Christ followers should look like and live like than we do. See, to a person that's never met God in a personal way, there is this thought that, okay, if an individual meets God and they said their life has been changed by God, then there should be some evidence of change. It's just not that complicated. So James is speaking, though, to Christ followers. If you say that you're a Christian Christ follower, this is for you. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it if someone says what they believe but they don't do anything about it? What good is it if somebody says, I'm a part of this but they don't really participate. What do we call someone who says something but never follows through? What do we call that person? Not a hypocrite. We call him a politician. <laughs> now, there is, there is a hypocritical aspect to that. I mean, have you ever paused to think about there are two parties asking for us to vote for them over and over and over again, and a bunch of other ones too, and many of them have been there for 30, 40 years, but oh, this election, now they've figured out what's supposed to happen. They've made these promises before. I don't know who's dumber, them or us. Politicians say around election time all the stuff we want to hear, and then don't do jack about it until the next election. And they've been there forever, and then we just keep voting on them and voting on them and voting on them, like we expect something to change. 
James is saying, don't be a political Christian. Don't live your life with a lack of authenticity. To be a Christ follower is not just to wear a label. And just because you say you're a Christ follower and just because I say I'm a Christ follower does not make it so. We also live in a culture that whatever you decide you are, everybody's supposed to just accept and believe. I think I'm a head of lettuce. I believe I should be a head of lettuce. That's how I feel on the inside, like a head of lettuce. You should treat me like a head of lettuce. That is so stupid. But that's who we are as a couple. Just because we wear a label, it does not mean that's who we are. And some of us apply labels to our lives to deny who we actually are because we don't want to look at the reality of it. We'd rather pretend. So he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Can the kind of faith where you say you believe something that practically speaking makes absolutely no difference in any area of your life Is that real faith? Can that save someone? If your life looks no different in reality, if your marriage doesn't really look different, if your parenting isn't really different, if your friendships aren't really different, if how you function in the workplace isn't really different, if how you navigate your finances isn't really any different than people who don't know Jesus, James is saying, do do you really have faith? So I need to ask you some questions very quickly. And these are questions I hope that you'll honestly contemplate because if you have the courage to honestly ask and answer these questions, it will dramatically benefit not only you, but the people you love the most. You don't have to answer them, but I'm just trying to be helpful in asking these questions. I ask the question of you and I ask the question of me. Does your behavior, does my behavior say that you're a Christ follower? Does my behavior say that I'm a Christ follower? If we were to take away the fact that you call yourself a Christ follower and list your behaviors on the screen, would there be enough evidence to convict you of following Jesus? Next question. Does your attitude say that you're a Christ follower? How you think about people, how you think about you, how you respond to challenges and difficulty. Does your attitude, what happens before it ever gets out to behavior, Does it say that you're a Christ follower? Do your choices say that you're a Christ follower? The choices that you make in how you function in relationships, the choices you make in dating, the choices you make in marriage, the choices you make in parenting, the choices in how you treat people. Is there enough there to say that you're a Christ follower? That you might push back and say, well, man, that's a little much. That's a little intense. Nobody can be perfect. You're right. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. James wasn't perfect. We can't be perfect, but we can be obedient. And we have bought in to a kind of a faith and a kind of a God that requires no obedience, just a label. As long as I say I'm a Christ follower, I believe in Jesus, it doesn't have to affect my life in any way as as long as I've got the label. That's not obedience, and that's what James is talking about. James is going to paint the picture that if you say that you've met God, you've been changed by God, your sins are forgiven, Jesus Christ comes, and the Spirit of God lives inside you, if that has happened in your life, even a kindergartner knows if you've met God, there should be some kind of change in your life. He goes on, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, if someone that you encounter, if someone that you know is cold and hungry, and one of you says to them, 
Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Now, we don't typically say, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You know what we say? I'll pray for you. Have a great day. Oh, you've got a need? I'll pray for you. Have a great day. Now, I mention this not to diminish prayer. Because the scriptures paint a very clear picture that prayer is powerful. Prayer moves the hand of God. Prayer engages God in circumstances. Prayer is intensely powerful. Prayer is not a last resort. It is our best option. Prayer is strong. The the, the issue is not that we should diminish how much, how often, how intensely we pray. No, that should not be diminished. We just might want to elevate the fact that often we are supposed to be the answer to the prayer we're praying. It's not an issue of don't pray. It's an issue of what can you do? How has God gifted you? Often if God puts the need in front of you and God puts the burden in your heart and you see it in your praying, often that means he's calling you to address the issue and be the answer to the prayer. So James is saying there are some people that wear the label Christ follower, call themselves Christians that wear a label, but it doesn't translate to their lives. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus can say, I'll pray for you. And James asked, what good is that? What good is that? As you evaluate your faith, as I evaluate my faith, what good is it, practically speaking, Monday through Saturday? Sunday afternoon. See, if your faith is not turning you into a better person, it's probably not saving you for a better place. If your faith is not turning you into a better person, bringing about some kind of change in your life, making you more like Christ in how you think, how you function, how you interact with people, if that's not happening in your life, do you really have faith? So so then James, inspired by the Spirit of God, fully the Word of God, James says, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Just saying you believe and praying some prayers and thinking spiritually and not doing the things God leads you to do, James is saying, that, that's not faith. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, God says in the end times we'll stand before him in front of a judgment and people will come and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And people say, hold up, hold up, hold up. I, I, I went to church. I was a part of C3 Church, the greatest church you ever started on earth. It was amazing. I was there. I, I, I stood out in the hot sun by a door and held it open for people and smiled at them. I taught, I taught little kids. In fact, some, sometimes I taught kids and sometimes I just stayed with little infants and took care of them so their moms and dads could go in the main room. I, I, I did these things. And the Bible says that God will still say to some people, depart from me, I never knew you. Because often the areas that we exercise our faith are the only areas that are convenient and easy and don't cost us much. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, if there's not an evidence of it, is dead. Are you a living corpse? Is there anything to your faith other than the label you wear? He continues, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And right here, James does something very, very subtle that I think creates and speaks a profound truth into our lives. 
James is not actually in disagreement with Martin Luther later at all. James is saying, look, the works in your life, you're not doing these works to get to the place that because of them, God gives you faith. You're actually functioning from your faith. And because you've been changed by the spirit of God, there are some things you now do in your life. This is not working toward, this is working from. This is not trying to get something from God. It's because God, through his grace and mercy, has radically changed my life, forgiven me of my sin, loves everybody around me. I'm now going to give my life in some form or fashion. I'm going to use my resources. I'm going to utilize my gifts to engage other people and help them find Jesus like I did. It's not working my way toward God's approval. It's living my life from a place of God's approval because he loves me and he changed me. Not This is not because I'm good. It's because he is God and he initiated the whole thing. But when God changes you, if he really changes you, James would say, then there's going to be some change in your life. If you say you've met Jesus, but not much has changed, I don't know that you've met Jesus. I'm not saying you have, I don't know. I just, when I read, when I read the scriptures, there's to be some evidence of it. And so then James, this next verse, you believe that God is one. Now James was referencing something with that statement that every Jewish person there would understand in that culture. There is a famous verse in the Old Testament that was their verse. Just like in our day, we have a verse, John 3, 16. You see it on TV. You see people hold it up at ball games. You see it on bumper stickers. It's on coffee mugs. We all know it. Even people who don't go to church know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that those who believe in him or trust in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. It's our theme verse. We put it under our eyes in ball games, hoping we can catch better. We, we, we write it down. We think, oh man, uh, it's so good. God loves me. It's our theme verse. Well, for the Jewish culture in Deuteronomy, they had a theme verse. There is one God and he is our Lord. The Lord God is our Lord. Deuteronomy. Chapter 6. In a culture where people worshipped many gods, the Jewish culture understood there is one God. So James says, you believe that God is good. You do well. Even the demons believe. If you're here this morning and you would say, I believe in God. So would the demons. So would the devil. In fact, did you know the devil believes that every single word in this book is actually the word of God? The devil believes the stuff that God teaches about marriage. The devil believes if you do that, you will honor God, bring glory to him, and improve your life. The stuff where God talks about how you and I should manage money. The devil believes we should tithe. Because it's what the Bible says. The devil believes we should forgive people according to scripture. The devil believes that that the Bible teaches that we should engage people in a way that we love them and care about them. The devil believes that scripture teaches every single person we lock eyes with is deeply loved by God. That means the devil believes more of the Bible than some people that call themselves Christ followers believe. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. The devil believes that. There is no Bucky Beaver Award in heaven for believing all the right stuff. The demons believe and shudder. See, there is a level of fear and understanding on the part of our enemy of who God actually is. 
And I think part of our struggle is we have bought into an easy believism and a kind of faith that says you just say the right things, believe the right things, nothing about your life has to change, and don't you dare fear God. He's a God of love. You know what? I have the most amazing father in the entire world. I love him deeply. I'm very close to him. There's a little bit of fear. Fear as in defined as reverence for who he is. Does your enemy understand who your God is more than you do? So James goes on. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? I didn't call you that. James did. Do you want to go on, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? See, our behavior reveals what we truly believe. It's our behavior that is an evidence of what we truly believe. Our our behavior reveals what we truly believe. It's just the reality. And in about a second, it's going to pop on the screen, I promise. Our behavior reveals what we truly believe. See, isn't that amazing? (laughs) And, And then James does something where he talks about Abraham. And he explains that Abraham was called a person of faith. In fact, the Bible says that Abraham believed in God. Now think about it. Scripture's inspired by God. God wrote that. He put that in there. God says, Abraham believed in me, no doubt about it. How could God say that? Well, Abraham, when he was much older, he and his wife Sarah had no kids. And God said to them, Sarah's about 90 years old. You're going to have a baby. You're going to be the father of nations. Now, In a couple weeks, we're launching community groups. And if you're 90 years old and you're going into a community group and you ask them to pray that God's going to give you a baby, we will pray for you, but we'll we'll also help you get some therapy. Because, listen, the Bible says that when when they were told they were going to have a baby, that Sarah laughed. When I get to be 90 years old, which is well off in the future, if you tell me that me and Andrew are having a baby, I will not laugh. I will cry. I will weep. But sure enough, Isaac is born, and in the Hebrew, it means laughter. Because I wonder if God, in that loving way that he does, with a grin toward children that are precious to him and that he loves deeply, as a loving father would say, in a kind-hearted way, the joke's on you. Because every time I promise something, I come through. You can doubt me. You can laugh about it. You can question me. But I love you so much, I'm going to be faithful. And every time I tell you something, I'm going to come through. Isaac would begin to grow, and then there would be a moment where God would say, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, the one you waited decade after decade after decade, the one that you prayed for over and over again until you stopped praying and gave up hope and thought it was hopeless because God does not ever give up hope. We give up hope much sooner than God does. The the son that I gave you, your only son, I want you to take him and offer him as a sacrifice to me. What would you do? Wait a minute, God. You promised me that I would be a father of nations. God, you promised us a son. It's the only one we've got. At our age, there's probably not another one coming. This is it. You made me a promise. Abraham had volumes that he could have accessed of questions and complaints and concerns. It made no sense at all to obey God. It was counterintuitive to obey God. It seemed like God was even going against what God had said. But Abraham did not access the volume of questions. Abraham simply obeyed. And he took Isaac and There's that moment all the way until Isaac's tied up on the altar and Abraham raises the knife that God says, stop. And he provides a different sacrifice. 
And God knows beyond any shadow of a doubt. And could then write inspired in scripture. In James chapter 2, Abraham believed in God. He believed at a level that there was obedience. It affected his behavior. Why does James bring that up? Why does he talk about Abraham? Because James is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, obedience is not optional. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to follow the teachings of Jesus. And then James says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Could it be that part of the reason you feel spiritually stuck Part of the reason you feel spiritually empty and stagnant is that you've been wearing a label instead of embracing and living a faith. So here's what I'd love you to ponder throughout the week, and I'm going to continue to ponder. Faith that's not doing anything through me is not really in me. Faith that's not doing anything through me is not really in me. But wait a minute, Pastor. I mean, the the Bible talks about how we should love people and I love people. You know what I've noticed about people in church? We love people in church. You know what I've noticed? Listen, think about it. If the only people you love are the people that are lovable, if the only people you like are the people that are likable, if the only people that you care about are the people that are easy to care about, that takes absolutely no spiritual faith at all. Even people who don't know God do that. But when you love people that are unlovable, Christ followers are the only people that are going to do that. When you like people that are unlikable, it's followers of Jesus that are going to do that. It requires faith. So in a few weeks when we start community groups, if you're in a community group and you contact Barry Leather and you say, man, there are a couple people in my community group I don't like. You're following Jesus. (laughs) You're being like Jesus. Faith that's not doing anything through me is not really in me. Maybe that's why God would also write over in 1 Samuel, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Maybe that's why in the first chapter of Isaiah, God would show up at a worship service, 8th century BC. He would show up at a worship service where they were singing the songs and going through the motions and taking offerings and offering sacrifices and burning incense and praying prayers. And God shows up simply to say, I'm leaving your church. I won't be here again. Don't bother praying to me. They were doing every single thing right in the service. They just weren't obeying God in their lives. So they made a mockery of who God is. You and I live past the Old Testament and what's called the New Testament, the New Covenant. We now live in a new time where Jesus came and he died for our sins. Are we who carry his name living lives worthy of his death? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sing the songs with gusto on a Sunday morning. To obey is better than raising my hands and getting emotionally into the worship. To obey is better than just attending and considering what I might do or might not do. To obey is better than sacrifice. James is saying, you know your faith is real when you obey. 
And if you claim to have faith but lack obedience, you don't have authentic faith. So how do I know if my faith is real? I mean, what's the test? How, how, how can I really know? I, I think there are two or three indicators. There are more than that, but just let me give you quickly two or three this morning. First of all, if my faith is real, it affects how I treat people. If my faith is real, it affects how I treat people. If my faith is real, I have an understanding that every single person I lock eyes with is deeply loved by God. If my faith is real, I understand that there is no one in this room this morning less valuable than anyone else. If my faith is real, I also understand that people that are not in this room, people who don't even bother attending church, are just as valuable and loved by God as anybody in this room. If my faith is real, it affects how I see people, how I treat people. If I'm considering hiring someone to be on our team at C3, I'll tell you a secret. One of the things I do is I take them to a restaurant to have lunch or dinner because I want to observe how they treat the server. And if they don't treat them well, I don't hire them. How do you treat treat people that ultimately can do nothing for you? How do you treat people that some people might believe are beneath you or don't matter or aren't important to you? When your faith is real, it impacts how you treat people. And you understand that every single person is deeply loved and valued by God. When, when, you, when your faith is real, when my faith is real, it affects how we treat people. It affects how we treat and communicate and act toward people who are going to vote for a party different than the one we are. You can be so much of an ambassador for your political persuasion that you lose influence with people and can't bring them to Jesus because they're so, they're so mad about your politics because you're more passionate about your politics than you are Jesus. Thank you, both of you, thank you. Are you trying to convert Democrats and Republicans? Or are you trying to ask the Spirit of God to use you to change people's lives? Because if you can convince somebody of something, somebody else can convince them of something different. But if the Holy Spirit of God convinces somebody, nobody can change that. And you have a bigger mission. Listen, don't don't live beneath your privilege and influence. You have a bigger mission. Disagree with people, but love them while you disagree with them. That's fine. It's fine. You know what you're going to discover one day? You know what I'm going to discover? One day when this life's over, we're all going to discover we were wrong about some stuff. But you're never wrong when you love people. Never. So if my faith is real, it's evidenced in how I, how I treat people. James, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. Treat everybody with love, whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not. You love people. And especially inside the body of Christ, Jesus said, we will be known by our love for each other, not about how we debate each other, not about who's right about this and wrong about that. We will be known by love because the authentic power of love brings two people to the same table when their disagreements are even deeper. So how do you treat people? If my faith is real, (laughs) I can't wait for this one. I told you some of you are going to be offended. If my faith is real, it'll be evidenced in how I spend my money. (laughs) 
Sometimes while I'm talking in this room, preaching, teaching, whatever you call it, while I'm talking to you, I have a conversation with God, and it's often, should I say this? Should I say this? Should I say this? <laughs> Usually he says yes. Sometimes, no, 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 no. But James chapter 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, they're cold, they need clothes, and lacking in daily food, they're hungry, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? If you have authentic faith, it will affect how you handle your money, how you spend your money. I love giving, investing in the life of C3 Church. I believe Scripture teaches the church is the hope of the world. Scripture teaches that the church is the bride of Christ. Now, we may be friends, but if you decide you don't like or don't appreciate or don't value my bride, we're not friends, and you better look out. So when we diminish the bride of Christ, which is called the church, God says, hey, my plan for the world to help the world, to serve the world, is the local church. And my plan to allow the local church to be able to do that is for people that are followers of Christ to fund it. So God says, here's what I want you to do. I could say live on 10% and bring me 90, but I'll say live on 90% and bring me 10, because it all comes from me anyway. So if you call yourself a follower of Christ and you have an income and you're not bringing the first 10%, how authentic is your faith? You're leaning into your fear and your logic and your reason, not into the word of God and faith. One of the things I love doing is giving in the life of C3. In fact, one of the things that I absolutely love, the largest payment that Angie and I make in the entire month, every single month, the largest payment we make, even more than our mortgage, is to C3. Because I believe in the local church. I know how it's changed my life. I have four kids who've radically been changed by God. It happened through the local church. It happened through many of you serving and leading them and praying for them. God has used the local church. The best people I've ever met in my life, I met in church. I met my bride in church. I met you in church. I've met a couple people I didn't want to meet in church. But by and large, by and large, the greatest people I've ever met in, in life are in church. And the church is the hope of the world. How in the world can I call myself a follower of Christ, changed by the grace of God, radically saved, forgiven of all of my sin, but he can't have to percent that comes from him anyway. How do you do that? How do you rationalize? You're leaning into volumes of fear and question, questions rather than your faith. Because the Bible says if you're not bringing the first 10%, you're robbing God. Wait, 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 pastor. Wait, wait, pastor. I've read my Bible three or four times and I've noticed that's in the Old Testament. And we're in the New Testament now. It's a new covenant where, you know, Jesus died and forgave. Well, it's fascinating you bring that up because I've heard people try to rationalize away because at the end of the day, it's not that they're struggling with what theology to have. It's just they're struggling with their own greediness and selfishness. And so they try to rationalize away what Scripture teaches. Yes, Jesus came, but Jesus did not diminish. He elevated. For example, in the Old Testament, the law was, if you commit murder, you're guilty of murder. In the New Testament, Jesus takes it up and says, if you hate your brother or sister in your heart, you're guilty of murder. In the Old Testament, if you actually committed adultery, you were guilty of adultery. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I tell you that if you look at someone with lust, you're guilty of adultery. He did not diminish. He elevated. Bringing 10% to the local church, it's not the goal. It's the starting point. It's where it begins. It's the moment you bring the power, protection, and provision of God into your life and exercise your faith in a way that it actually means something and you're doing something about what you say you believe. Now, everything you see in the life of C3 
is funded by about 20% of the people in this room. 20% of the people in this room fund about 80% of what we do. And listen, we're doing great. God's using this church to change lives. Incredible things are happening. I don't just wonder what would happen if all of us that claim to be Christ followers actually lived like it. I wonder what could happen in your life. I wonder what you're not experiencing that God would love to bless you with because you just lean more into fear than faith and you think more about you than you do about God and you think because you call yourself a Christ follower, it must be so. And James says, hold on, you owe it to yourself to really evaluate that. If your faith doesn't affect your finances, do you really have faith? If your faith is in God, but there are areas that are limited that faith doesn't go in your life, Is that really faith? I'm just asking the question. It's up to you to answer it. And here's the beautiful thing about it. My responsibility as pastor of this church is to do everything I can to faithfully proclaim what I believe the word of God teaches. Your responsibility is not just to take what I say as gospel because I am not God. If I were God, the Cowboys would win the Super Bowl every single year. I am not God. So the beauty is, it is your responsibility to search the scriptures for yourself and you allow God to teach you and show you, I'm going to do my dead level best to teach you what I believe they, they say. But, but don't try to bring some spiritual monkey business or gymnastics to the word of God to rationalize why you can live without obeying God. Authentically search the scriptures and then say yes to what God shows you to do. If my faith is real, it affects how I treat people, it affects how I spend money, and it affects how I respond to God. It affects how I respond to God. When God shows you something, even if it's awkward, even even if it's different than what you would do, if it's uncomfortable, do you do it anyway? I go to the gym about five mornings a week. And thank you for not laughing when I said that. I go to the gym five mornings a week. You go to the gym? Yeah, I don't do abs. They're big enough. I do everything else. (laughs) Who needs that? So... But if, I, if my muscles are going to grow, I have to take them to uncomfortable places. If you're going to grow in your life, if you're going to finish up this year in a better place than you began it, if you're going to begin to elevate your life, you've got to begin to maybe go to some uncomfortable places. So in your spiritual journey, what is your next step? If James says faith without works is dead, if you authentically have faith, what's the next thing that you need to obey God in? Now, if you don't have faith, the first step in a spiritual journey is to surrender your life to Christ. That's the first step. That's where you surrender and commit your life to Christ. That's what brings the grace and forgiveness of God into your life. That's what brings the Spirit of God to live in your life. Yes, you get eternal life in heaven after this life, but you get the Spirit of God in this life. The next step after that is baptism. Did you know that every single person that was baptized in the New Testament was baptized after they became a Christ follower? So if you were baptized as a child or as an infant, I'm not taking away how meaningful that was to your family. I'm just communicating the truth to you that you know, but you may not have thought about. That was not your decision. That was your parents' decision. In the scriptures, every person that's baptized, it's after they commit their life to Christ. And also in the New Testament, every person that's baptized, it's right after they become a follower of Christ. There's not a hesitation. There's not a, I think about it. I wait. I don't know. It's the next step. After baptism, it's giving and serving, bringing that first 10%, serving in the life of the church, making a difference in other people's lives. After that, the next step, biblical community. We all have community and relationships. We're built for relationships, but do you have biblical community? 
In a couple of weeks, we're launching community groups. You need to be a part of one. Is that your next step? So, so what's your next step? Now, here's the fascinating thing about when I take the steps that God is calling me to take, when I surrender my life to God, when I say yes to baptism, when I say yes to tithing and serving, when I say yes to biblical community, the more I say yes to what God is asking me to do, the closer I get to God and the more he elevates my life. It happens every single time. So what's your next step? What's beyond that? What's beyond biblical community? I have no idea. God may individualize that just for you after that, but I don't believe God is going to show you what's next until you've done what's now. Why would God show you the next thing he wants you to do when you're hesitating on what's now? James, brother of Jesus, faith without works is dead. Crystal clear, there's a pattern in our spiritual lives. Some of you this morning, you need to surrender your life to Christ. That's the step you need to take. As I've talked about it, something inside has happened, and it's like the Spirit of God is just saying to you, hey, you've called yourself a Christ follower, but your behavior hasn't reflected that, your attitude. You need to surrender your life to Christ. Some of you, you've already done that. Your next step is baptism. You know it. You need to be baptized. Good news, we're baptizing next Sunday. Imagine that. Man, you you need to be baptized. Some of you, you need to begin serving. You need to begin giving. Did you know in the life of C3, in the last four weeks, we are up 16% over last year? That's phenomenal. But here's what's going to happen. Hundreds and hundreds of people are coming because they hear there's something unique here. They, They understand that something's happening in the life of this church. But I wonder how many more people God would prick their hearts and bring them to come here if some of you would get off the bench and in the game so we can be better prepared to serve people. And it will not only make a difference in their lives, it'll make a difference in yours. Because you're taking the next step. You're getting closer to God and he's elevating your life. Some of you, it's giving. Man, you need to take that step. When I say yes to God, I say yes to his best for my life. Some of you, it's biblical community. What's your next step? Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for the reality of your love and your grace and your mercy without which we are hopeless. But God, because of your love and your grace and your mercy, May we be a people that live authentic faith, not just wearing a label, but following you in this journey of life, taking the next step you show us. May we be a people of obedience that live our lives in a way that bring honor and glory to you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning and your next step is to commit your life to Christ, to surrender your life to Christ. It's it's the first foundational step. And you know that's what you need to do. If that's where you are, I want to encourage you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of the moment. You just say, dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life and forgive me of my sin. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Jesus, I don't want to just wear a label. I want to follow you. In Christ's name, amen. 